Here we go. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26 uh, in a, a short message that I'd like to do before we have the Lord's Supper as kind of an introduction to uh, the Lord's Supper itself. Um, we're going to read verses 12 through 26. I can promise you I'm not going to make a point on every one of those verses, but, uh, but we're going to read together this very beautiful passage about the resurrection of the dead and particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the significance that that holds for us as we look forward to the second coming of Christ and what that means for us as believers. Um, so let me freshen my voice a little bit here. But uh, let's read together, uh, or you follow along as I read aloud, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 26, and then I'll pray and we'll get into the sermon. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word, and you have given us your word for a reason. Lord, there is not one wasted letter. There is not one wasted phrase. There is not one wasted point. Lord you, Lord, you have spoken through your prophets. And as the writer of Hebrews says, you have spoken ultimately and finally through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we know that what Jesus has done, both in his life and or in his life, his death and his resurrection, they are final. As he declared on the cross, it is finished. Lord, we may doubt, we may struggle, but that does not mean your, your uh, salvation is any less firm and any less true. Father, we do not make it true because we believe it, but it is true and we are called to believe it. So, Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the faith to believe 
Lord, in a world that uh, faces attacks on our faith so often, even it seems on a daily basis, through the media and through politics and through uh, just our day-to-day interactions with our friends and uh, even our family. Lord, we even see true physical attacks on our faith in other areas of the world like Sri Lanka. Lord, it is difficult to understand how those who could trust in the one true way would suffer so greatly for their faith. And yet we know that that is the essence of faith, enduring to the end and trusting and hoping in something that is to come. So, Father, strengthen our faith as we consider your word today. Give us faith through the preaching of the gospel. Give us faith through the, the observance of the Lord's Supper. And may we do these things in faithfulness to you and trusting in your word as we leave this place. May we look forward to the kingdom that is to come. Father, bless me as I preach. Give me the words to say that might encourage and build up and take away those words that would distract or lead astray. And may all be done to your glory and your honor. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we've already discussed in the prayer time, I'm sure you've seen throughout the, the week, there have been plenty of tragedies to, to lay hold of, to talk about in this, this Easter Sunday morning. But uh, I'm sure you were caught like I was by the, the uh, catastrophe that was the burning of the cathedral in Notre Dame as its beautiful 850-year-old spire came crashing to the ground in balls of flame. It was a terrible thing to watch. And people from every walk of life, from everywhere in the world, reflected sadness at this loss of this monument that has stood for so long. There were many reasons that people were universally horrified by the event Some were personally connected to the cathedral, having worshipped there or married there or uh, even studied there. Some were not Christians, but also felt the awe of the building uh, and, and reflected on how much it meant to them when they spent their time in Paris or when they considered the city itself. While there are many reasons that people were upset, I think there is one reason that probably touches most people or touches a nerve with most people. The cathedral has been a symbol of permanence for the people of Paris for over eight centuries. The building looms over everything in Paris. I want you to imagine this. My wife told me that there was a news report uh, that they could not, architects had realized that there was no way that they could rebuild the spire that had fallen Exactly as it had been built, because there are no longer trees in France that are large enough to build the beams that were in the spire. Can you imagine that? The size of the beams that it would have been in that spire and the massive trees that it would have taken to build it. People say that when you're in Paris, that most of the time people refer to where you are and you can locate yourself based on where this massive building is in the skyline. That you can know which side of the city you're on just by referencing Notre Dame. That sense of permanence resonates with everyone because one of the most 
deep-seated desires for every human is to gain some sense of permanence in a world that seems to constantly be changing. After all, one of the primary reasons for a building of such structure is an attempt to establish a permanence for the Christian faith in France. We all long for permanence in this life. It's why we erect statues. It's why we place tombstones at our loved one's grave. It's why even the unreligious have a, some sense of have to have some sense of their memories living on in the people's lives that they love. It's why men seek fame and fortune and power and recognition. Deep down inside, we believe that life should go on, even though everything else around us tells us that it won't. Cathedrals burn, statues crumble, Unattended gravestones are covered in grass. Memories fade and fame is short-lived. But we all believe a lie. We all believe a lie that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We all believe the lie of Satan that we will not surely die. I have a good friend, uh, Dr. Rob Fawcett, who is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Greenville, and he says often that we know that death is coming. We just don't believe it's coming for us. We see it happening all around us. We watch our loved ones pass. We watch our friends pass. We watch all of this happen around us, but yet we hold out hope that we can beat it. It's not coming for me. But from the very beginning, men and women have believed this lie. Adam and Eve believed it, and so they took the fruit. Cain believed that he should not die for his crime of killing his brother, so he begged for protection, and God did protect him. The people of Noah's day believed that judgment would never come for them. The Egyptian pharaoh believed that he was more powerful, even more powerful than the death angel himself. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon believed that his power came from his own wisdom and his own strength and that he could build a statue that would preserve his power and his strength for all of eternity. And the stories go on and on again. But even the people of God believe the lie too. Abraham and Sarah believed that they could create life without the provision of God and so they formed an unholy union with Sarah's bondservant, Hagar. Moses believed that he was the one that provided the, the life that the Israelites sought, so he struck a rock in pride. David believed that his military might would protect his life, and so he took a census and angered the Almighty. Solomon believed that wisdom and pleasure would re- reveal the keys to life, And he confessed at the end of his life that all was vanity and chasing after wind. Even some of those who heard and initially believed the story of the resurrection of Jesus had begun to fall away and believe this same lie. Paul writes uh, to this group in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12. Some had come into the Corinthian church and had begun to say that there was no resurrection of the dead. 
That really all we had to hope for in life was to go on in a, a bodiless existence after death in the afterworld. And that was all there was, to just become a ghost and just be that way for all of eternity. And Paul writes to this group and he encourages them not to lose heart and not to lose faith in the resurrection of the dead. And he asks a question in response to this group that is saying that the dead do not raise. And he says, he asks, um, if the dead are not raised, then how was Christ raised? Then he makes a very striking statement, a very striking warning That if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins, and we among all men are most to be pitied. You see, even today we have two errant views of salvation that Paul is addressing here. The first view that Paul is addressing is the idea that really all that matters in this life is your soul. And in fact, that's often the way we talk about salvation is salvation is the salvation of the soul. But uh, you might have heard the story, uh, the term, God don't make no jump. You've heard that that phrase probably before. And we say that often about somebody that's doubting their their uh, meaning in life, doubting their beauty, doubting whatever. And we say, well, God doesn't make any jump. Well, same thing's true of the earth. God made it the way He wanted it to start. And the purpose He is working in this world is to bring about total and complete restoration of the creation that He made, including you. And so when you look in the book of Revelation, you don't see the idea of us dying and going on to live in spiritual clouds in the heaven and we have wings and harps and we're all playing up there in the holy band in heaven. That's not the idea you have in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have the idea of a renewed earth and that renewed earth is now with heaven. Now heaven abides with men. The second error we often make, even today, is the idea that really, you know, the, we're, we're just a physical, uh, the physical is all bad and, and the spiritual is all good and the idea to get rid of this body and be done with it. And that Jesus really just came to redeem our souls. And oftentimes what we focus on when we focus on Easter even is the death of Jesus. And we focus on how he died for our sins. And we talk a lot about that. And all of that is true. But that is not the point of Easter. And it's not the ultimate completion of our salvation. Paul says if all we have to hope for in this life is uh, this life then we of all men are most to be pitied. If all you're living for is just to go on and be a a holy cherub in heaven when you die, then we are most to be pitied. Because Jesus has not just come to die for your sins, He has come to give you new resurrected life. 
And so what we look forward to is not ultimately a pie-in-the-sky idea of heaven, but rather a completed and renewed earth where we abide with God in our bodies, in resurrected bodies that God has restored and given new life. The reason we long for permanence to this life is because even for all of its flaws... This life is still good. There are still days where we enjoy the smell of a beautiful spring day. If you didn't enjoy that yesterday and you don't enjoy that today, there's something wrong with you. There are still nights around a dinner table with great food and great family and great friends where we enjoy the laughter and the beauty of the love that God gives us. There are still victories and accomplishments. There are still home runs and there are still wins and there are still great projects that we finish at work and there are still work that we do for other people that mean something. There is still that great feeling. Yeah, I think it's a great feeling after a hard day's work in the garden or in the field where we come home and we feel that satisfaction of having done the best we could and having built something or planted something or worked in something beautiful. All of those good days, all of those good times are but a taste. They're but a taste of what is to come. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves it all. Paul says that Jesus has been raised as the first fruits from the dead. Now, if you're if you're a farmer or if you farmed or gardened at all, you know what Paul is talking about here. What he's saying is it happens in every garden. You go and you plant tomatoes or you go and you plant uh, corn and you go out to the to the garden. And one day you see that tomato turning yellow and you see it start to turn orange. And there's always one that does it before all the others. And depending on how that tomato turns out is an indicator of the rest of the crop. If that tomato, and I'm making y'all hungry, I know right here before lunch, but if that tomato turns out beautiful and red and delicious, then what's the the rest of the crop likely going to be? It's going to be the same way. Paul says Jesus is the first fruits. And Jesus is the perfect human. He is the perfect king of this world who is now, right now, even in the chaotic world that we have, now ruling and reigning from God's throne. And so if Jesus is perfect and He is the first fruits, then what will we be? We will be perfect too. And we will rule and reign with Him For all of eternity as his brothers of God. So friend, that longing that you have for permanence, that longing to escape death, is the testimony of your own soul that something is not the way it should be. You were not made to spend 80 years in this beautiful yet tragic world and then return to the dust from which you were made. 
You were made for eternal fellowship with your Creator. We celebrate Easter because that hope is coming. Trust in Jesus today as the first fruits of a coming age that will bring a perfect and eternal life. Brothers and sisters, may we rest this Easter in the life that our Savior, Jesus Christ, brings. May we enjoy the new life that He has given us. Because He has brought us life through His Holy Spirit, we are able right now, even in this beautiful yet tragic world, to taste a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming. When we share together in this worship service, we are tasting a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming. When we share together in this table that is prepared before us in the Lord's Supper, we are sharing in a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming. When we serve one another and when we serve our world, we are sharing in a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming. May we live in expectant hope of the resurrection that is to come. Not planning on escaping this world for some ethereal world out there in the by and by, but rather looking forward to the day when God restores all things and brings all things to their right and final end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us.